Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Farnak. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm talking to Professor Nairi Kurse about living well with dementia. Nairi is an Auckland GP, Professor of General Practice and Primary Health Care, and she holds the Joyce Cook Chair in Aging Well at the University of Auckland. Nairi runs an active program of research in improving the health of older people. She was also awarded a Distinguished Fellowship from the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners in 2011 and was made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for Services to Seniors and Health. Congratulations, Nairi, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. So today we're talking about living well with dementia. The diagnosis of dementia can be shocking for both patients and family members as they have to readjust to a new paradigm for the future. Primary health care providers are often the first port of call for support and guidance. Today we are going to use two cases to discuss pertinent points to enhance living well with dementia. So let's start with case one. Mr Blue is an 80-year-old New Zealand European gentleman. He has trouble finding his keys, denies conversations that his wife has had with him and is struggling to balance the family accounts. He has also become more aggressive. Mr and Mrs Blue live in the family home but are considering a move to the local rest home. So Nairi, what do we need to ask in the history to work out what is happening for Mr Blue? Okay, so I guess um, always thinking about a differential diagnosis as you ask the questions is important. So for regular garden variety Alzheimer's disease, the onset and the course is kind of hard to describe. So asking when it started, if people don't really recognise when it started, that would be normal. So gradual changes. Change is important. Have things changed? So what was Mr. Blue like three years ago, two years ago, last year? Think uh, People have trouble thinking about it, so choose an event. Okay, so talk about Easter. Was he okay at Easter? So the progression, how quickly have things changed and how have they changed? Is it a stepwise change? Suddenly they get worse and then they stabilise. Suddenly they get a bit more worse. <clears throat> and that therefore you're thinking about what could be causing this problems with dementia. Is there actually a problem with cognition or is it a hyperactive, extra worried wife who's just annoyed with her husband. So, you know, the global assessment of dementia, are there occasional lapses of memory or is there systematic and ongoing loss of memory for recent events? Is the orientation, do they know where they are? Can they get themselves in and out of the house? Do they know what day it is roughly? Do they realise when they're at an event that it's their son's birthday or their grandson's birthday? Um, are there difficulties in complex problems? So uh, uh, hobbies are a good thing to ask about. Mr. Blue might have been a, a model airplane maker and, and flyer. Does he still do that? Can he fix the complex things that go wrong with them? Has he stopped and lost interest in doing the complicated, lovely things that he always did? For women, are they still uh, engaged in, in the uh, craft and other activities that they usually do? Is it because they can't do it or because they don't want to? And I guess all the time you do need to think about the differential diagnosis of depression. Delirium. So delirium, the course is definitely varying throughout the day, associated with some organic cause. Is there an underlying low-lying infection? Has there been something that is, um, is causing a delirium? That diagnosis can be really difficult, but... Often if somebody's been in hospital, they'll get delirium, 
nobody will quite realise what's going on. They'll come, you'll see them and they'll be quite different. Just remember that that hospitalisation can take quite a long time to recover from and give them a chance before making the diagnosis of dementia. Once the diagnosis of dementia is made, uh, you know, everyone tends to put people in a box that says they're useless. That's not the case. There's a very gradual onset. There will still be things that people can do, and it's very important for Mr. Blue. So in the history, other things to make sure you, you ask about, their social history, their educational history, their employment history. Somebody who is particularly in the older ages, over 80 these days, um, then uh, the cognition test that you're going to use is going to not be fair in assessing that cognition. Edu employment history, if they are an engineer who's been managing a big company, they will have a lot more cognition to lose before that will become noticeable in everyday activities. So understanding where the baseline is important. Other important components of the history, the health history, including a head injury actually, because head injury is a significant um, uh, risk factor for dementia. Um, and so asking about those things, you're lucky in general practice because you'll know their health history. But if it's somebody who's new to you, you have to fish around in their old notes. You have to ask about their health history and find out what's been going on. Okay, medications. <laughs> what poisons have you been giving them that might be causing this cognitive problems? Have they been taking over-the-counter anticholinergics for their cold? Have they been borrowing their wife's sleeping tablets? Is there anything like that going on that you need to know about? So moving on to physical examination, what should we be performing, Nari? Okay, so I guess um, you will notice the general demeanour of the person. Have they become dishevelled? Do they dress appropriately? Those kind of things. Now, some people never dressed appropriately, so you're looking for a change. But if Mr. Blue always wore a tie and was spick and span and now comes in without a tie and this is change, doesn't care about his own appearance, that's important to notice. Physically, cardiovascular disease and neurological are the most important uh I guess, systems to examine, and then the higher and lower cognitive functions. So a cognitive test, you should do one because people are very good at covering up their deficits. And I've had many long conversations with patients and then suddenly did the cognition test and they only got 18 on their mocha. So it's very interesting. The mocha is what is used in New Zealand at the moment or recommended. There is a change coming with the mocha with a standardised training thing that you do online which has a cost and so when some people are now looking at the RUDAS which is a developed in Australia, the R-U-D-A-S and um, it was developed by someone very interested in Aboriginal health and so is a little bit more education fair and culture fair and um, uh, is very good at detecting or suggesting that there might be dementia, not so good for MCI, but then MCI is another whole uh, difficult area that we, we could talk about forever, but I don't think we'll talk about that much today. So that uh, Omoka is taken or the cognition test is taken in the context of the clinical and the physical examination, clinical history and physical examination. The MOCA is not a diagnostic instrument in itself. It has to be considered with your clinical history. So it's the full assessment that's needed to make a diagnosis. The other part of the assessment, of course, is blood tests and imaging of the brain. So the blood tests are to rule out reversible causes. Syphilis is coming back. Don't forget that. Don't forget thyroid. Don't forget diabetes. Um, don't forget calcium, which can also mess up your cognition. General anemia, somebody who's very anemic will have unusual cognition. So uh, liver function tests. Don't forget alcohol in the history. 
people can become cognitively impaired because they've been heavy drinkers all their lives. So yes, those are the things that you're thinking about. Imaging, CT versus MRI. I think for the straightforward diagnosis of dementia, CT is okay. MRI gives you a little bit more nuanced information. You're looking for brain shrinkage. You're looking particularly in the hippocampal areas. And of course, you're looking for those things that I don't understand, those multiple small stroke or vascular changes which go with more vascular-related dementia. So I think... I think you're going to ask me if GPs can make the diagnosis. I think GPs can make the diagnosis. I think if there's something unusual in the diagnosis, rapid onset, unusual subtype, if you're thinking about Lewy body dementia or frontal lobe dementia, definitely referral to the regional memory service is important. Regional memory service will always take a phone call and discuss things with you and uh, will always accept a referral if you're not confident in making the diagnosis. And I think it's really up to you whether you refer or not. Yeah. So later in the month, Mrs. Blue returns alone. She has questions that she wants answered before discussing with Mr. Blue. So specifically about her wills or his wills, the EPOA and the advanced care plans. So what things should we be discussing with her or is it too late? Okay, so um, the EPO has to be made, it has to be, the decision about your EPOA as an individual has to be made when you have the capacity to make that decision. And so that means you have to understand everything about what that means. <laughs> and so once the diagnosis of dementia is made, that's probably too late. Uh, we all should make our EPOAs now. Um, so it's got to be done before you lose capacity. Capacity assessment is something that GPs can also do. There's another whole module on that that's available. I think. Some people with mild dementia may have the capacity to make that decision. And so trying to have a conversation with Mr. Blue about whether he understands what EPOA is and whether giving away that decision making is something he wants to do and whether he can choose, choose the person that he wants, uh, I think is useful. But usually it's too late. Advanced care plans, a little bit different. Many people have the capacity to make those decisions. And, and of course, the family may be involved in that as well. Advanced care plans are a good thing to discuss uh, and discuss early. But again, he has to have the capacity to make those decisions. And so that's tricky when you're in that grey zone of of what can you decide to do. Capacity is an interesting thing. Throughout this discussion, we notice that Mrs Blue is looking quite tired. She's quite tearful throughout the consultation. We discuss caring for the carer and suggest she consider some respite or perhaps some community support. So what's available for her and Mr Blue in the community whilst they're living at home? Well, I don't think you can go past your GP. So regular contact with the GP, use the therapeutic relationship to support her, to let her tell the difficulties that she's having. They will be many with caring for somebody with dementia and supporting her in every way you can. Don't forget Mrs Blue's physical health. She will have comorbidities. If she is developing depression, please treat that depression in the many ways that it's possible to treat that depression. For Mr Blue, Respite care. Uh, Respite care is available, I think, 28 days a year. He can go into a facility funded by the government, by the uh, health services, and um, that can give her a good break. In-home respite is also available. The local aged care services, so through the DHB uh, aged care services for referral, for multidisciplinary assessment and blah, blah, blah. That should happen for Mr Blue. They In each region that differs, but many places in-home respite is available for somebody to come look after him while Mrs Blue goes out. Day services are also growing. 
and that might be a centre where Mr Blue might go to have an exciting time for a day. Cognitive stimulation and purposeful activities are very important. They can uh, happen outside the home in a place or actually inside the home. There's something called cognitive stimulation therapy which is spreading throughout New Zealand which is two, two one-hour sessions a week where a facilitator will gather people together and go through some uh, cognitively stimulating activities, reminiscence, orientation, introductions, memory training, and um, that can be quite useful for people with dementia. So there are services available. Mrs Blue has to accept them, and having that discussion is important. Even the discussion of having some physical support for Mr. Blue could be happening. Uh, would that be useful, somebody to help him shower so at least she doesn't have to take care of him in that regard? All of those things should be available. But I do think for Mrs. Blue, uh, your support as her GP as well is, is really the cornerstone of supporting her. So our next interaction with Mr. Blue, he was diagnosed with dementia a year ago by you and He's been well since then. He comes in, they're still living at home, he wants to renew his driver's licence. He sees no reason not to continue driving, but on some questioning, he admits that he has lost his way home when he was dropping the grandchildren off. He has hit the rubbish bin on reversing out of the driveway and he's scraped the side of the car a couple of times. What do we do here, Nari? Okay, so this, many of you will be very familiar with the situation as well. This is an ethical dilemma. Probably he shouldn't be driving. He wants to drive. You've got the individual's needs balanced against the safety of the public. So this is some responsibilities we all have to take on and it's our job. And so a conversation with him about stopping driving is probably necessary. Uh, you already have some objective evidence that uh, there are problems with small accidents, with getting lost with the grandchildren is probably the mo one that I would most worry about. Um, and so uh, engaging the whole family in that discussion. Can somebody drive him up? Is that available? Is he willing to be driven? We've all had those experiences which were relative disasters where the car had to be taken away and the ragingly angry man had to accept that he can't drive anymore. Sometimes that's just necessary. So objectively, you need to uh, make that decision, have that conversation with him and the family and notify NZTA. You don't police that decision, so the police and NZTA do that. Um, and so that is a very difficult dilemma, which everybody hates to have to do, but sometimes it's necessary. As far as actually when people who are losing cognition can't drive anymore, is really tricky to decide. There's no magical cognition test the repeating at the time of the driving assessment, I think on the back of the driving sheet, there's a suggested cognitive test that's useful or repeating the mocker that you have done before because you diagnosed this gentleman um, is important. Uh, reaction times are also important. You can do some simple things for that. The field of view, can they see things in the periphery and react to them? Some of those things are important. General mobility. I know I talked to one GP once and he said, I get the older person I asked to see their driver's license and if they can't find it or they fumble getting it out, then that's a clue that they're, they're losing capacity to do the complex tasks that are needed for driving. But yes, it's a very difficult question and um, sometimes those difficult things we need to engage in. So at what point would you refer for a, to NZTA for an online oh, test or that, on-road test? On-road test, yeah. So that's a very good point. If you don't want to take that decision alone, the on-road test is available. 
and simply send the back to NZDA to have the standard driver's license on road test. So there an instructor will be with them and the instructor will either fail them or not. If the instructor passes them, that's another dilemma. Send, and the other alternative is the more expensive OT on-road assessment, and that's also available and quite useful because it gives you more information about what areas of capacity are being uh, threatened. So either is an alternative. Doesn't, you can't go past the on-road test. It's much The on-road test at NZTA is cheap and it's available. Perfect, thank you. So a further year on, Mr Blue is no longer driving. He lost interest and chose not to renew his licence. His memory and aggression are worse and the Blue family are considering a move to care. So what factors should the family consider when they make a choice of a care facility? Okay, so there's, so the, the choice to go into care is a really difficult one to make and there'll be lots of different opinions and um, views about that around the world. But it is up to those two individuals to make that choice. And when they make that choice, many people are much happier in care than out of care. I've seen little old ladies who are anxious in the community blossom when they go into their rest home. So it's not all bad. Many people say it is. Choosing one is kind of tricky. You can't go past actually going to the facility and hanging out in there, observing the interactions between the staff and the residents. Are the residents' needs being met? Is there a resident-centred approach to care, you can tell that by talking to the staff and by talking to the management. I don't think it matters what the place looks like. It doesn't have to be new brand spanking mauve, mauve furniture. Um, the functional relationships within the home are, are much more important. There's also um, models of care. So there's some new facilities being built where, they, where they're going back to a, a home-centred uh, structure, which means uh, six to eight residents around a living room and a kitchen and a dining room and looks like a house rather than long corridors with many many doors down the down the down the corridors and they'll have a multi-skilled carer there who will engage with the residents who will participate in managing their own care so actually cooking stuff actually doing their own washing actually hanging it out this gives them purposeful activities and for many people with cognitive problems, it returns them to an expected level of function where they can participate in things. So thinking about that is, re is relatively important. Um, so look, thinking what's available in your area. I think it's really important that Mrs Blue has access to the place. So, so it's not a long commute across town or in a different town. And that usually decides where the best place is. But yeah, considering what it's actually like inside is, is important and going in and visiting several places. You often get a sense immediately of how things are just when you walk in. So when a move does happen, Nairi, adjustment can be tricky. What can we do to help our patients and families adjust to change? Yes, so remember when you change the environment of someone with dementia, they will naturally have great difficulty adjusting. So understanding that that's going to happen is important, acknowledging it, taking familiar things with them, um, having an approach that uh, that it's important not to not to upset them. So they may continually want to go home and just jollying them through using distraction techniques, moving on to a productive activity at those times. Those The transition can be very difficult, but with time, adjustment usually happens. The staff and facilities are usually very good at orienting people and settling them in. 
Medication can be used temporarily. If medication is started, it's really important to think about stopping it again if it's just a transition issue. We all try to keep away from major sedatives and, and, and tranquilizers in, uh, for people with dementia because it impairs their physical function and, and is a risk factor for falls. Sometimes it's necessary. But thinking about those resident-centered approaches is also important. What is it that they used to do? I have one story I want to tell. So this was a lovely care facility um, over in Mount Eden, which cared for mostly people with dementia. They had a gentleman who wouldn't cooperate with anybody. They found out that he'd been the mechanic, so they went and got an engine block and put it in the backyard with a stool beside it, and that was his job. He'd go out there, do things to the engine block, come in all oily, and he would immediately wash his hands, sit down, have a cup of tea, have lunch. This is a man who wouldn't wouldn't sit at the table with other people initially. And so in that way, they normal gave him something productive to do and normalised the behaviour of eating lunch. And then, of course, he would have a shower because he would be oily from the, uh, from the engine block. So thinking about innovative things like that, the activities coordinators are really important because that's their job, getting to know the person and individualise their programme. So moving on to case two now, Nairi. We're talking about Mrs Kofi. She's a 78-year-old Maori woman who presents with her whānau, who have concerns about her memory also. She has excellent recall about her whakapapa, or family history, but forgets weekly events like going to church. She is losing everyday items. And Mrs Kofi, she is a proud woman and denies that there is, there is anything wrong with her memory. So what do you think is happening here, Nairi? Uh, Mrs. Kofi is probably having some cognitive problems. I find with Māori patients it's really important to make sure that you are cognizant of tikanga and whakawhanaungatanga and all of those things that go with uh, with with Māori culture. And so introducing yourself properly and uh, being extremely respectful, remembering that there is more to health than just health, uh, for everybody actually. So the four pillars of health, so whānau, family health, tinana, physical health, hiningaro, mental health, and wairua, spiritual health. Wairua is very important for uh, uh, thinking about dementia. So having broad conversations with her, but you know your job is the same, um, either you know making a diagnosis. So you do need to have those conversations about what is actually happening, what uh, structural parts of cognition are, are being struggled with and you do need to do the cognition test. How you couch that and how you approach it may be different because you need to engage with whānau and family and you need to have a broader conversation but you still have to um, do your job as a clinician and think about whether she has dementia or not. Yeah. So for Mrs Kofi, if you're making the diagnosis of dementia um, the level of understanding of everybody about dementia is important. So some people tend to think it's a catastrophe and that catastrophic thinking and, oh my God, this is the end of the world and they're going to be in a nursing home and they're going to be like, you know, all the terrible things you hear tomorrow is something that is really good to talk about. So reframing that catastrophe to a disability can be quite useful. We're all used to disability and enabling people and helping them or empowering people with a disability. So re reframing from catastrophe to disability is really quite useful. Remembering that those psychological support mechanisms that you can provide as 
a sounding board are really important. So actually just engaging in conversations about dementia and what's likely to happen. If Mrs. Kofi's been had a very gradual onset, then things might not change for quite some time. Simple adjustments in the way people react to people with dementia are very useful. So yes, she may forget what happened yesterday. Constantly telling her off for forgetting is not useful. Arguing with people about facts which have been forgotten is, is also sometimes not useful. Distracting on to productive activities uh, uh, can be quite useful. And so for Mrs. Kofi, she will have many capacities that she still has. If she's able to cook a meal, participating in helping her with the cooking. If she's able to, you know, look after mokopuna, that's really important for her to be engaged with the mokopuna. Family can make small adjustments which keep the older person safe, but still active and still productive. And those kind of things can be very useful if families understand the process that the older person might be going through. So regaining function is also important. So people in early dementia, by being challenged and by uh, being actively engaged in cognitively stimulating things, can recover some function or maintain some function. So for Māori, kapahaka is extremely complex and engaging, and it involves a long sequence of, uh, uh, of activities and, and actions that need to be remembered along with words. So really encouraging lots of kapahaka and lots of physical activity that's cognitively engaging. Um, I am always amazed when I go to Māori ceremonies how the how much memory is involved in the long reciting of whakapapa at uh, times of protocol and engagement. Those kind of things will help to preserve Mrs Kofi's um, cognition and she should actively engage in all of those. Okay, Nairi, so to conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please? Okay, so don't be afraid of dementia, engaging with it, understanding that a good clinical history, along with your cognition test and an examination, is the basis of diagnosis. Remember that everybody is different. Of course, you know that the cultural context is important. Getting through the clinical history and examination will depend on you understanding their context. So for Māori patients, being careful about the appropriate protocol is important. So being very realistic with families, not expecting change soon. Small adjustments can really help. Think about driving early on. Think about EPOA and getting organised for the future earlier rather than later. Don't wait till it's too late. Uh, otherwise, there'll need to be a legislator. You know, the PPP Act is important. Your job is to look after the whole whānau, of course. So caring for the carer is at least more than half your job. Happy carer, happy person with dementia. Happy person with dementia, happy carer. So looking after them both. The basic looking after medical conditions, the core tasks of primary care don't go away. Remember that. Be very uh, frugal with medications. Community agencies are always available. Different situations around New Zealand and different availability will mean that your local situation is what you need to know about. Don't forget that the local memory service and your DHB is always available, so avail yourself of their advice. Making referrals is, is actually a really good idea, but you can do a lot yourself. See the Goodfellow website. There's some excellent learning modules there about making the diagnosis of dementia. There's also supporting family family and uh, those caring for Māori patients. There's a great resource there to have a look at. Health Pathways also has the pathway for dementia care and the mild cognitive impairment pathway is also there too. 
So yes, uh, talk to each other in your peer groups about your patients with dementia and their families. I think it's a fascinating topic. Thank you, Nairi. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. As Nari mentioned, you'll also find some other resources available for free here, webinars, med cases and the e-learning modules. Thanks for listening.